0: Hi, folks. I'm Mark Fallows, and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast player, and please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or visit TheimpossibleNetwork.com. So
1: I feel okay, like my parents get instilled in me from an early age, and I have clung to it, the idea of being a beautiful weirdo. That is the kind of person I hope to be, the kind of people I'm drawn to. That's my idea of a special human being, is where you're sort of okay to embrace the off. And that, I think, is something that my parents looked for at every turn.
0: Born and raised in New York, to a graphic designer father and illustrator mother, her prolific life in design and branding was almost destined. Welcome this week's guest, partner in international design firm Pentagram, Emily Oberman. In part one of this two-part episode, Emily recounts the impact of her upbringing based on the idea of art, discovery and joy how humour and singing was never far, and explains how the work ethic her parents instilled has served her well through her three decades in design. Emily discusses how her parents introduced her to Monty Python, the Marx Brothers, and Mad Magazine, and how the idea of being a beautiful weirdo has remained with her throughout her career as she seeks out oddness in everyone she meets. We cover Emily's serendipitous journey from studying design at Cooper Union in New York City her sojourn into film studies, and how that set her on her path to a life in design, content and storytelling. We discuss Emily's early design influences, her approach to design, and the role of story and ideas in her work. We end part one with Emily recounting how she ended up working under her mentor, Tibor Kalman, at design firm Emmanco. In part two, we explore how Emily met and formed a 17-year partnership with Bonnie Siegler, forming their New York design firm, Number 17. Before we dive deep into her 20 seasons of driving the identity of Saturday Night Live, we also discuss her leadership experience at Pentagram and the challenges of combining that with motherhood. Finally, we discuss diversity. And of course, we get her quick for our quick-fire questions and answers. I hope you enjoy the curiosity, so, humour and design before we get started, I have to give Emily a shout-out to Debbie Millman for making this happen. Because she was the one that recommended who we interview next and your name came up. Ah. So... Welcome to the Impossible Network, Emily.
1: Very happy to be here. And, very happy that Debbie recommended me.
0: And it's very kind of you to welcome us in your amazing Pentagram offices. First time being in here. Extraordinary.
1: Uh, the, had you ever been in the Old Space? No. The Old Space was amazing and a piece of like New York history, but it was also dark and broken.
0: Right. Well, let's get let's get started. We'd love to understand before we get into the journey. Uh, into design and branding to understand more about your childhood. You're born in New York City uh, to design parents, both of them designers. Really, it's a perfect start for a life in design. So perhaps you could maybe just embellish a bit about your parental support, their guidance, and and how their direction affected the journey you've been on.
1: Sure. I was born in Yonkers, New York, something I don't actually say out loud that often. But I grew up in the house that my mother was literally born in. So my mother never lived anywhere else or has never lived anywhere else. And both my parents went to Cooper Union. They were both artists and designers. My father was a graphic designer and my mother an illustrator and a painter. And it's very different from most of my friends who are in design now to have had parents who know exactly what you do and can talk to you about it in very specific ways. Like, my parents can actually critique the typography that I do.
0: That could be a good thing and a bad thing. It, exactly. <laughs> it really could be, it's, it is, I don't know if I'd like that.
1: It's, It's. it can be trying. And sometimes I get mad at them and say like, no, you're, you know, don't say that. And then I, an hour later I think, he was right.
0: And this is um, from, correct, Arlene and Mo?
1: Yes, correct.
0: I've heard you refer to them as super badasses, designers, uh, artists, and black belts.
1: They are badasses. So wouldn't
0: want to get on the wrong side of Arlene and Mo?
1: No, they're both black belts in judo. I only got as far as yellow belt. But my parents, my whole upbringing was based on the idea of art, discovery, joy. My parents liked nothing more than a song and a laugh, I would say, that that... That was sort of the driving force of, apparently when I was little, I'm told that I thought that all the songs that they sang, they were just making up as they went along, and that's how life was. Life was actually just a musical, and I would try and do it not as well as Cole Porter, but they instilled in me at a very young age the idea of a work ethic Mm -hmm. also, because my parents collaborated. My father would design children's books, and my mother would illustrate them, and so they worked together a lot and whenever they had a project like this, they would also hire me to do some drawing within the book. So there's always, ah. in any of the books that they drew uh, it's and designed. probably that now. <laughs> Child labor. Yeah, I know. No, because they paid me. <laughs> oh, they did. Also, and my mother always said, if you do a service, you get paid for that service. That's and great. so I was always paid for the half a page that oh, I was wasn't designed. But minimum wage? <laughs> I'm sure it was way less than minimum wage. But they also told me that they couldn't pay me until the check came. Uh-huh. So I would ever always be like, when's the check coming? To get my 50 cents or whatever it was. And I love that they taught me that from the beginning. So they always, I always knew that there was a commerce side to a certain kind of design and uh-huh. art, that I understood that there was art that you did for creativity and that you didn't always get paid for that kind of work. So you hoped to. I did understand that design was a commerce-based, a commercial endeavor. A commercial yeah, endeavor. but that's great. I
0: mean, that's fantastic that they instilled in that. That was um, quite so far-sighted.
1: And they also made it. It was never less than. Uh-huh. It was never less than fine art to them. It was always just a different kind of art that was treated in a different way. And I, so I grew up believing that from the beginning. My father also worked a lot in advertising, so I always had an appreciation. For the art of advertising, like I always liked commercial art in all its manifestations. It's interesting because going back to the, the point in advertising,
0: because I mean I spent my life in advertising, and working big agencies, mm-hmm. and didn't have parents that had nothing to do with it, but just d- developed a, a love of ideas, and the storytelling element of advertising that got me motivated by it. I sort of got to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to come back to this sort of the the your your upbringing. But I, I've heard you talk about the importance of ideas in design. And the great thing with advertising, all great advertising campaigns have good ideas in it. But a lot of people don't think about design and being underpinned by an idea. They just think about it as the aesthetic. I think that from an early uh, stage of your career under your mentor, Tibor, uh, instilled in you the the understanding that an idea is enhancing the design process Was there a point in time at which you were going design, advertising, because of ideas were what you were driven by and inspired by? Did you ever have that moment, even at Cooper Union, where you thought, let's see, Madison Avenue, maybe?
1: I still think about it. Oh, you do? Truth be told, I still think about it. Not that I'm going off to an ad agency, but I still think about the idea of blurring the line. Mm between design and advertising. I think that a lot of the work that we do or that I've done throughout my career, starting with Tibor, was always, because it was idea-based, it always tried to promote an idea in a way that I think advertising does, that design doesn't necessarily get the credit for doing, but good design should do. We do a lot of strategic work now, which I think is also about building the story up from behind before you even get to the design. And so that also supports the idea of idea-driven design. I sort of have stayed within the design world because I like it. I still like the beauty of design. And advertising, I think sometimes there's a commercial aspect to that that I think, I don't know that I have the constitution for, I think. (laughs)
0: It's a good way of describing it.
1: (laughs) So I think by pushing the amount of content that goes into the design we do, I think we try to push that edge as far as it will go without actually having to be a person making a gigantic commercial for an agency where there are a thousand people standing around a monitor looking at a bar of soap or uh, I don't know I just I don't think that I could sustain that I sort of need the intimacy of the design work that we do with our clients even really really big clients mm-hmm. it still feels very intimate to get into the soul of what a brand is so I still like that but I I love great advertising I think great advertising is a, another art form in and of itself as you just yeah. said
0: but I, th- I think the the interesting evolution of the direction you've come and where you've where you've ended up here in in pentagram mirrors the way the industry's gone that ideas used to be the domain of advertising but as the world has become integrated a good idea can travel and come to life in any medium whether it begins with design or whether it begins in advertising a good creative should be able to express that in a relevant meaningful motivating way regardless of medium so i think it's great for the industry that there's, a, there's more diversity, but there's a recognition that there's not the traditional hierarchy that advertising sits at the top anymore. I think it's now more of an even playing field that creatives, whether they come from the web, whether they come from print or graphic or even from advertising, can just as easily define an idea and let it live across multiple mediums. And I think it's great for the, for the industry creatives.
1: I completely agree and I also feel like we are lucky enough that we get to work with clients for whom that division is a very blurry line. Mm. We have been hired to do an identity for a, a movie, for instance. We were doing the logo great. for Ready Player great book, One. Great movie. And when we were working on it, when we were presenting ideas, the part of the movie is about all this nostalgia for the 80s. And one of the things that we presented as we were showing the logo options was this idea that we make a million posters of famous movies from the 80s, but redesign them to look to be Ready Player One. So that instead of saying Back to the Future, it says Ready Player One. Instead of saying The Lost Boys, it says Ready Player One. And that became the campaign. Like that became one of the poster campaigns for the movie. Just from us having that idea, because we think bigger than here's the logo and what the logo should be, Warner Brothers took that and ran with it and made these fantastic posters.
0: Yeah, great client to recognize such a powerful idea, presented them. And so, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And I've heard you talk about that one before. We've jumped ahead. Let's just go back to your childhood. Obviously, with parents as uh, committed to design, not everyone does follow their parents' path. Clearly, they, <laughs> I didn't realize that they did draw you into the, sort of the, into the family business at an early age. What was the role of, beyond just them immersing you in the actual sort of design experience yourself, what was the role of play and the freedom they gave uh, you as a child to express yourself outside of doing, let's say, design?
1: My parents were incredibly creative all the time. And so everything that we did as a family, and I'm an only child, and my mother's also an only child, and my father was had two sisters that he was not that close with. So we were a very tight unit. And so we got to sort of explore the world together. And my parents were very unconventional. My father retired very early from design and advertising because he just wanted to live life. So they were completely comfortable taking me out of school for long periods of time to go on different adventures and different vacations so that we could sort of explore the world together and look at things through a, an incredibly optimistic lens. And I would say, again, the thing that they brought into my life that has stayed with me as a person, as a creative, as a, just a human, is the idea of humor. And that everything could be funny and that everything could be turned into a story so that nothing was just left as it is. Even a meal or even the way you have dessert after a meal could turn into a sort of. Um, We used to make we used to make characters out of food at the end, like with dessert. We would make puppets out of the fruit. And that was all part of how we sort of explored the world. Again, my parents were incredibly intrepid in the things that they did. It was not common. Very few of my parents' friends were studying judo at a dojo in New York City in the late 60s and becoming black belts. Like, that was something that they just became interested in and obsessed with, and they followed through. Mm. My mother was very interested in cooking, and so... She learned to cook all kinds of different cuisines. She was incredible at anything from Asia, and she taught me that as well. And so the idea that even the kitchen was a place that you could explore, that you could do something different, that you could be creative in, was sort of the thing that I think that they taught me, that I live with every day still. I don't know if I do it as well as they do, but I have that idea and that knowledge that everything can turn into something else Between the two of them, which
0: one of them was the one driving the concept of humor? They were equal
1: opportunity humorists. My father taught me about Monty Python. Oh, good one. When I was 10 years old. I like that. And they took me to see Monty Python live when I was like 12. I was the only kid in the audience. Uh, Yeah, on Broadway. Oh my goodness, that must have been amazing. And And so from the very beginning, my gods were the Marx Brothers... Monty Python, and Mad Magazine. Those were things that my parents, in equal measure between the two of them, my father maybe a little bit more Mad Magazine, uh, and Monty Python, my mother more Marx Brothers, Fred Astaire, but everything was a song, a musical, a joke, and the idea of the humor in language Uh was really important, like the writing of something, like the way Mad Magazine was written, and of course the way it was drawn, and the way the patter in a Marx Brothers movie, and just Monty Python, just mm. in general. So I have this weird upbringing in that all my parents' friends all went to Cooper Union and they all married each other. So my entire life were all couples who had met in college, all coupled up and stayed friends amazing. forever. It's like a little design commune of New York. It was, <laughs> it was exactly that. And, and then I went to Cooper Union and sort of became the poster child for Cooper Union for many of them. And every single one of them was interested in wit and surprise.
0: Because it's a very sort of distinctive sort of combination of humour from Marx Brothers and Monty Python and Mad. How did that affect your, your design aesthetic? Do you think it had an influence on you?
1: A couple of things I want to say. The thing that all of those things have in common is they're all weirdos. And there's, a, yes, there's a
0: nonconformity and an irreverence to them as well.
1: So I feel like my parents instilled in me from an early age, and I have clung to it, the idea of being a beautiful weirdo.
0: I love that term. Have you got that in your business card?
1: <laughs> I will now. <laughs> that is the kind of person I hope to be the kind of people I'm drawn to. That's my idea of a special human being, Uh is where you're sort of okay to embrace the off. And that, I think, is something that my parents looked for at every turn. When I go on vacation, I buy my presents for people at the supermarket where I can find something that's funny, or interesting, or okay. beautiful, or a, in a perfect world, all three at once. It's hard when you're coming back from vacation with a suitcase full of canned goods. <sighs> but, <laughs> so I think that the idea of oddness is really important in what I look for. And and my favorite thing is to find oddness in the most normal places. Mm. Like to f- meet someone who you think is incredibly normal, but then underneath, there's this irreverence, there's this joy, there's this strangeness that you find that is always, like, that is always a spark. Sometimes it's a client, mm-hmm. sometimes it's a friend. Happily, it's my children, my husband. Like, we all sort of share that goal of beautiful weirdness.
0: That, that's a lo- it's just a lovely approach and attitude to, to life and development both in work and and at home. I was going to say, before you mentioned your children, is it something that you actively try and foster in them, that slightly non-conventional, obtuse way of approaching life?
1: 100%. Like, we are are pushing that agenda. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I may get accountants because of it.
0: It's going to be really interesting. They're going to rebel and be
1: incredibly boring. But... Well, that doesn't seem to be the case
0: yet. I mean, I, we always ask a question about the, what was the most, the most defining moment of, or memory from your childhood. As soon as you mentioned Monty Python on Broadway, I think that must have been probably right up there. But is there anything else that you look back and think, that was a pivotal moment in my upbringing?
1: This is a pivotal moment that isn't related to my parents. Again, I had the good fortune of having parents that I loved, that I never rebelled from, I went to public school in Yonkers, and my fifth grade teacher was the first time someone from outside the family unit, outside the sort of umbrella of the Cooper clan, saw me. Like, you know what I mean? Like like she, that expression, she saw me. Uh-huh. And she understood who I was from an outside perspective, not from my family. and. Her name is Tony Ullman, and she—I think of her still today as one of the best teachers I ever had because she recognized what made me different from the other, I'm sure, wonderful students. But she saw that spark in me, and that intelligence, and that sort of curiosity.
0: Do you do you remember uh, the moment when you you realized that she saw something in you? I or do you just look back with a fond memory around that time and that age, remembering that she was such an important person in your life?
1: It's hard for me to know. I think that there's a moment where she gave me a book of Greek mythology to read. And she said, I think you will be really interested in this kind of storytelling. And I think of that as a moment where she sort of understood that I sort of liked the idea of a certain kind of storytelling a certain kind of mythic storytelling that also has this strange and godly and human quality that greek mythology does and she specifically gave me the story of athena and she chose that for me and i've always thought of that as a moment where i thought oh okay, I, I'm i going to understand this, I'm going to learn this because she thinks that I should. And then I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely went deep, deep, deep into the world of Greek mythology and uh, Greek theater. And, and I was 10. And I think of that as a, just an important moment in my sort of understanding that I could use my brain mm-hmm. in a different way than maybe I had been till then. So I think of that. I also think I have this incredible memory of her talking to me about politics. And it was the 70s, so it was like just post-Nixon.
0: So Carter and Ford and all um, that time. Yeah.
1: And so I remember her being very politically active and very politically minded, and me sort of starting to have that interest through her. My parents also always super lefty liberals so I sort of grew up with that as my touch point. But there was a way that she was more of an activist than my parents were. My parents were, it was kind of just their lives. But she was protesting. She was out on the front lines. And that was another thing that I sort of learned. I learned that you could have that kind of voice from That's her.
0: Good. Okay. The next question was, what was school like for the young Emily? But you've really just, uh, I think you've answered that. And, and what was the name of the teacher?
1: There were two teachers oh. who taught the class together. It was Tony Ullman ms allman and ms jacobs Miss jacobs i think moved away but my parents remained friends with Miss allman which is why i now know what her first name is <laughs> for years i still i was just emailing with her the other day so she's still part of my life
0: an active activist I, I hope yes oh my god it's yes gonna be, it's going to be busy for the next year yes um okay well let's let's move on so you, as you said, you followed your parents' footsteps, attended Cooper Union. How did that sort of experience impact you? Going, going there, probably being well-known and, un- and recognized, being all in the family, in the commune. Were there, was there a pressure or an expectation on you to excel that you were aware of? Or did you just glide through the whole experience?
1: Well, a couple of things. I wasn't 100% sure that I wanted to go to Cooper Union. I sort of thought that perhaps I wanted to go away like leave the fold and go to RISD. Time to rebel. After Time our, to rebel <laughs> for, all the way, the crazy the, different art school. From, the, from cradle um, to
0: the point when she, was, you all you did is <laughs> done is conform and follow your parents' footsteps, but you didn't.
1: But then again, when I, when I got into Cooper Union, I, I felt like I had to go, yeah. I felt like I did. I did get into RISD too, but Cooper Union just, just drew me. Plus it was free, which was a nice perk. My fear about Cooper Union was that I would have to continue to live at home, but my parents were kind enough to recognize that that wasn't necessarily the best thing for a young woman starting her life at college. So I moved into my own apartment because Cooper Union didn't have dorms. But not at the time. Yonkers. Nope. No. I moved yeah. into the East Village. And so that was a whole new world and daunting, but Cooper Union was funny because it was so familiar. Like I knew the building inside and out and my parents had a friend who was the head of the Alumni Association and extremely involved in the school itself on a day-to-day basis. So I did have this sort of like, I know you kind of thing at Cooper, but it was also really scary because because it was free. There was a tremendous amount of pressure because they didn't have to keep you there because they didn't need your tuition. So, if you messed up, boop, you were out. So, and I am a worrier. So, that kept me up at night, kept me at the school, kept me working. I didn't take anything for granted. I have I've never taken anything for granted.
0: I've heard you talk about the, the role of fear in your life, but that surprises me given the, the safety of the environment and the support and the direction that your parents gave you and the humor. As you grew up and matured, you don't normally think of those conditions as instilling in someone a sense of fear or the need to worry. Usually you grow up being carefree and confident about life, regardless of what it throws at you.
1: You would think, but for some reason, my brain doesn't work that way.
0: This would be an interesting one to have a conversation with uh, one of our ex-guests, Courtney Renneke, who's a, a psychotherapist and child psychotherapist, to, to understand the difference between sort of, nature and nurture and where that comes from be fascinating
1: um yeah I mean I was gonna say this <laughs> could turn into a therapy session if we go further down that path well we won't <laughs> we'll carry on
0: maybe it manifests itself in this element of pressure but you still graduated and you were surrounded by inspiring designers of the time I've heard you talk about the designers like Milton Glaser and, and Max Fleischer Max Fleischer I mean he wasn't
1: around me he was just someone i admired very admired, yeah Yeah. and then bob kane bob kane is the guy who created batman yes i know so i was influenced by him but i also feel like i was focusing on him a lot when we were working on dc Uh so in terms of the world of dc he was an artist and an illustrator that i was very interested in and i loved his work in the world of comic books i also have to say that jack kirby was someone whose work i admired jack kirby who's marvel Spider-Man, Hulk. So in that world, I, I, like, to have to, I like to think that I had different kinds of artists whose work I appreciated in different kinds of ways. I'll go back to Mad Magazine just for a minute to say Mort Drucker, who was one of the artists for Mad Magazine who did the film parodies or the television parodies. His drawing style blew me away. And my father would sit with me and talk about his line work Mm -hmm. all the time and how he captured someone gesturally. And then Max Fleischer was someone whose work I started really looking into when I started studying film in college. That was another thing that school allowed me to do. So in high school, I also did a lot of theater. I was very interested in performance and performing. And that bug stayed with me as I moved into college, as I moved into Cooper Union. And it got so strong that I actually left Cooper to go study acting. Oh,
0: you've completed the I, I degree stopped. and then- I stopped. Nope. Oh, you
1: stopped? I stopped Cooper Union and took I took a year off to go study acting full time. Wow. And I went how and did,
0: I- How did Arlene and Mo take to that?
1: They did <laughs> they, not I like they it. I they, they weren't happy. They were not happy. They kept some saying- some stern words they,
0: they, and some judo mats. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they said, "Why are you throwing your life away to you don't know what the" and I'm like, "I'm leaving art school to go to acting school. They're both they're both questionable choices really for for career advancement." So, they agreed. Maybe they were hoping you were going to follow in the footsteps of Monty Python. Yeah. Well, there's a part of me that still thinks, well, that's wait. I think that I think that it all ties in together because I left, I studied acting for a year with Stella Adler, and so I studied full-time for a full year. And then, as I had promised my parents, I went back to to art school, to Cooper, and continued to take acting classes. But I realized I didn't, I didn't like the idea of what I would have to go through to be an actress. Like, I always thought if I had been discovered, then I could have done it. But to go through the rigor of casting and casting calls, I just, again, I didn't have the constitution for it. So when I went back to art school, I started to think about what was sort of the acting version of art or design. And so I started studying filmmaking. And that's when I started being interested in people like Max Fleischer. And I was making art films as I was back at Cooper also studying design. And that's kind of what led me into motion graphics. So it's sort of all like motion graphics and the motion work that we do and title design and working for television and working for film is kind of the result of being interested in performance and design at the same time. And then the Monty Python Mad Magazine is what makes the work I do for Saturday Night Live so uh, fulfilling for me, so enticing. Like, because it's... I sort of get, like, that's the sort of sweet spot of all of it. And that started with parody commercials, working on parody commercials, which, again, are like, we got to design work like an ad agency for a sketch comedy show. Again, it sort of all came together for me in that moment of sort of the thrill and the smell of the grease paint, and it just...
0: Part of the reason for doing this is we trying to understand more about serendipity a lot of people just think it's a happy accident and we believe that it's something you engineer through the choices and the decisions you make and your attitude to fear and failure and ambiguity and it seems to me that what you just described sounds like it was almost a serendipitous series of events almost like a beautiful fusion of that classic sorry to say that classic line that people someone said once is life happens for you not to you that this was life conspiring to take you in the direction that was right for for Emily. Is, that, is it something you've reflected
1: on? I do think about this. I've been thinking about it uh, quite a bit lately. That series of events that has led me to do the work that I do now that I love so much, that idea that's of sort of design as performance, mm-hmm. I guess in, in things like the titles for SNL or in the Spirit Awards or in any of the work that we do for film or television, it's all to me about the idea of performance, the idea of design, the idea of humor. They all sort of come together in this perfect storm Mm -hmm. of content for me that the kind of work that we do now really speaks to. Yeah, it's like an elixir of
0: different components that define your uniqueness and approach to design.
1: But I do think that that's part, that is the serendipity for Mm -hmm. me, is that all of those, you know, the leaving art school to study acting, coming back from that, finding film, film making, bringing me to motion, motion bringing me to be the person that at M & Company, when I was at M & Company, Because I had studied filmmaking, I became the person who did the motion work when that started to become more common at M & Company. And so that then led to being able to spin that out further and have that be sort of a big part of the work that I do today.
0: But also I suspect that it gives you an appreciation for story. It layers nicely into a lot of the work that you've done and understanding and bringing to life the brands that you have worked on.
1: I believe that all branding is storytelling.
0: Yes. No. I talk, I listen, I'm with you on that one. But a lot of people don't think of, about it that way, it, sadly.
1: It's yeah. crazy. Every piece of a brand is part of the story that you're telling about mm. that brand. It just is. And that's why I always say the littlest part is just as important as the biggest part. The, the scale of something isn't what makes the story good. The nuances of the story are what make it good.
0: I remember working in London in DDB in 1995, and there's a great creative director there, sadly he's dead now, called John Webster, that wrote some of the great ads from the UK, just culturally brilliant. But he talked a lot when I first went there about the importance of story, in that brands live in the minds of the consumer. We don't control what they do think or what they do as a resultant behavior therefore it's up to us to inspire an emotional reaction through the stories that we tell and if people encounter brands in every possible touch point if you're not adding to that story either through a piece of packaging whether it be through a piece of motion graphics or through a 30 second commercial you're detracting from that brand's impact i remember i went and did the robert mckee story class mm-hmm. way back in the day and people are going, why are you doing that? You want to get into film making? I said, no, if I, if I understand story, then it's going to make me more effective at what I do, whether it be presenting a strategy or coming up with a concept for a website, you know, whatever it is, understanding the core elements of story that go all the way back to, back to the days of Greek literature and Greek tragedy. It's, it's universal and it makes you stronger. So, I- I'm, I'm, so it's really interesting that you bring that up.
1: I completely agree, and I think all those acting classes that I took, all those scene studies, all of that, I use that every single day when I'm presenting to a client, when I'm writing strategy, when I'm working on a on figuring out a brand, the 360 degrees of that brand, it's all part of that. I always describe it as method acting for the client. And I say that like when we do our work well, what we end up with should look more like you than me Definitely. like you should yeah. be able to tell that i did it or we did it because it's smart and interesting and funny and beautiful and even if beautiful means ugly which sometimes it does but you shouldn't be able to tell beyond that so i i talk about the idea of design as method acting and it's all about telling the story mm-hmm. always
0: Right. you started work with your mentor tipper kalman And that's where I think we've already talked about this, that he taught you to think and consider the power of words, not just design. And I I find that interesting. And I've heard you mention this before, but I'd like you just to expand on it. And maybe it builds on what we're talking about already around story. When he talked about the power of words and not just the design, do you mean the use of words in your design? Or is there another element to it? Could you maybe just embellish on that?
1: I think it's both, if I understand your question. I mean... Starting at M and Company, and then through Number Seventeen, and now here at Pentagram, the idea of what the words are is really important to what the design is. So sometimes when we're writing, uh, when we're working on something, and we need words that haven't been written by the client yet, we write them because they tell the story better. So the actual phrases, the actual language, is really important within a design. This could is another. You, could you give me an example? This is the only example that comes to mind right now is that when we're working again on a movie logo design and we're presenting the ideas, we will, you know, you'll have to show the logo in a billboard. And in doing that, we write the words that go on the billboard. So we write the tagline for the movie and we'll write a different one for every concept. We, you know, just because it's fun for us, it's joyful, it adds to the content, it adds to the way you sort of understand the story of the movie, and often the lines that we write become the actual taglines yes, for the uh, films. What, and, a,
0: what about if we take that out film and I give you an example of something I think is brilliant okay. that you've done recently, which was the wing. Oh. Is that an example of where the words
1: matter? So the wing, 100% mm. the words matter with the wing. And again, that was something where we weren't hired to write the words and Audrey and Lauren, the founders of the Wing, are both brilliant with concept and words. They're both extremely good with language. And so there was a, a really healthy dialogue with them from the beginning about what the tone would be for the Wing and what the words were that we would use for the Wing. But we definitely, as we were working on it, would take that dialogue further And there was a lot of back and forth with them in terms of what the language was. But then as we were sort of working through the brand, we would write things to either explain what we were doing or to just be in the design if we needed something, like if there was a poster and it needed to have words, and we would write those words. They often would become the words that were then used at the wing, for the wing, by the wing, and about the wing. Mm -hmm. What was nice about that is that the team here that was working on it, we were all women, and we were all sort of right in that moment. Like, the wing the wing happened at such a specific moment in time when it was so desperately needed yes. in the world, and we all felt that. Between Audrey and Lauren and me and the team here, we sort of were right in the middle of that, again, perfect storm or maelstrom of the things that made the wing exist. And finding the right words for that would come through sometimes in actual words, but sometimes also just in the words behind the design. Mm -hmm. It often manifested itself in swag. So we would just make swag to sort of help convey the idea. And then as we made it, they would say, like, oh, let's make that. And the let's great do pencils. that. Yes, the pencils. Yeah. That sort of thing was, again, just to convey what the wing was and who the women that we all aspire to be were. And so that's how the pencils happened and the pins and the buttons and the t shirts and the bags all came out of a shared idea of what the tone of voice would be mm-hmm. for the wing. Because I
0: heard you on an interview with one of the founders, which one was it? Audrey. Audrey, yeah and i heard you say that the wing came as a fully formed human being and all you did is help it get dressed but that sounds much more like a, a process that's that's from almost an embryonic stage rather than a a, a fully formed human being because it sounded like that they brought you the everything the vision and all you just had to do is right okay, we'll, we'll create the design layer to it but that way, you just what you just described there sounded incredibly deep and a and, and little about the power of the getting the relationship and the chemistry right between you as individuals as well as just purely from a, a design standpoint. Is that different to your tradition, how you traditionally work with, with clients?
1: It depends on the client and I will say you're right. It was a much more organic, the, the fully formed part of it was I feel like Audrey and Lauren had this, they knew what the wing needed to be. Mm-hmm. And it started out a little less formed, especially because we were working on the wing during the primaries oh, like, and yes. the presidential campaign for 2016. And so what the wing needed to be changed as time passed while we were working through it. And when I what I meant by fully formed was again, Audrey had such a clear presence and vision and voice for what she wanted. She didn't she couldn't draw it out herself, but she knew. And it was in her It's
0: interesting. So you had to draw it. She can draw it out, but you had to draw it out of her. Exactly. That's uh, yeah.
1: And because our team meshed so well and because we understood the moment in time and the audience so well together, we sort of dressed it. But I think I don't want to in any way take away from what Audrey and Lauren visualized, created, Mm -hmm. thought this needed to be. But I do think that we were a big part of taking it from an embryo into a human, Yeah. a human who we don't even know Mm -hmm. how far she's gonna go. Can I say one other thing about serendipity? As you know, my parents, very important to me, and I grew up with this graphic designer, father, and painter, illustrator, mother, who were all about humor and language and joy and weirdness. And then I found Tibor and Myra, who were a graphic designer, husband, and a painter, illustrator, Uh wife, who were interested in language and art and humor and joy, and weirdness. And I can't believe how lucky I was to sort of be able to replicate my childhood, my life, the world that I knew in a professional environment and have my next set of mentors after my parents be another variation on my parents. How did you How did you encounter them, or did you just see a, a a job opening, or
0: did someone connect you with them?
1: I was alive and a graphic designer in the late 80's and everything I looked at that I loved, I would look for the design credit and it said Em and Company every single time and I knew that this was the place for me and the so direction you had to go in I sought out Emman Company. I dropped off my portfolio in the days when you dropped off a literal literal portfolio. I picked it up the next day with a nice note that said, great work, thank you very much. I was incredibly depressed. I continued to take my portfolio around. I got offered a couple of other jobs. My parents said, take that job. You need a job, take that job. And I kept saying, "Like I want to work at M & Company. And everywhere I went with my portfolio, everyone said, you should really why don't you, you should work at M Company. And I said, I hadn't, I had missed that opportunity. And one day I was meeting with someone and he said, you should take your portfolio over to M Company. And I said, I did that a few weeks ago. And he said, no, you should take your portfolio to M Company today, right now. And I guess someone had just quit. And I like left there, ran over there, dropped off my portfolio. The next day, when I went to pick it up, Tibor said, can I talk to you? It took me into his office. We chatted for like an hour, and he gave me the job. Wow. So. That is serendipity. Yeah. That. Okay. Is, yeah. yeah.
0: That reminds me, we interviewed a wonderful woman called Lucia de Respinés, who's an industrial designer from graduate of Pratt 1951. hmm and was the only one of two industrial designers at Pratt at the time and got a job straight out of school with a company that was, she would really didn't want to necessarily work with. But she had her eye set on George Nelson. Nelson's practice. Very similar story to you in terms of the same sort of circumstances happening. So it's very interesting. You could have given up, and but you didn't. You still had that belief that it was right for you, that this was where you were the direction life had to take you in and the doors opened fascinating
1: I don't make vision boards or anything but I do feel like <laughs> not I'm like, not like Debbie no I was that was a surprise to me yeah <laughs> um, but I do feel like I manifested that I think
0: everyone's got different different ways of doing it I mean there are people that do their vision boards write letters to themselves uh have affirmation techniques goal setting visualization I think it, it, everyone has their own particular way I don't think there's any one way for it, but I think it is, it's something that's deep inside you, a desire, a belief, and then I think it's the actions you take. I think it's as simple as that. There's three combinations of desire, belief, and action are ultimately the, the powerful elixir, again, to, to lead you to where you need to go. In part two, we explore how Emily met and formed a 17-year partnership with Bonnie Siegler, forming their New York design firm, Number 17. Before we dive deep into her 20 seasons of driving the identity of Saturday Night Live, we also discuss her leadership experience at Pentagram and the challenges of combining that with motherhood. Finally, we discuss diversity. And of course, we get our quickfire questions and answers. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.